morning, uh, Rethink Church. We're so glad to have you guys here this morning. Uh, a few announcements for you guys. If you are new or visiting with us for the first time, we would love to get to know you a little bit better and connect with you at guest services after the service. And that's over in our One Cup, Cup Cafe area. You can find me and I've got a gift for you guys just for being here with us. Um, next up, we also have Discover Rethink happening next Sunday after the service. And for those of you who are not familiar, it's just like a one-week class about um, who Rethink Church is, what our mission and vision is, and how you can get more connected. So if you are interested in signing up for that, you can sign up on our website at rethinkchurch.cc. Um, if you sign up ahead of time, we do provide a meal and child care as well. Um, so make sure to do that if you're interested. And it'll be just right after the service next week. Um, and then also, you'll notice in the back we have a little basket, and one of the things in those baskets are these notebooks. And those are for you guys. If you like them, you're free to grab them. Um, you can use these to take notes during church, through your devotionals throughout the week, um, whatever that is for you. Um, feel free to grab one of these after the service. And then lastly, as we go into the tithes and offering portion of our service, um, I want to talk a little bit about one of the things we think church exists for. And, you know, we're here to create a safe place to explore your faith. Um, so that we can be leading people into maturing relationships with Jesus. And one of the ways that we do that as a church is by serving. And that looks very different capacities that we do that. Um, we do it from random acts of kindness in our community every few weeks. Um, sometimes we go and we do a big survey in the community. Our last one was at the school, just loving on the teachers, filling the lounge room with snacks and goodies and signs and things like that. Um, but another way that we can be doing this in our lives is just by investing in the core people that God has already intentionally placed in our lives. Um, and we can do that throughout the week as well. Um, so those are just some of the many ways that we as a church can be the church outside of this building. Um, and if you want to support financially what God is doing here at Rethink Church, we have two ways you can do so. You can either give online at rethinkchurch.cc or we have that black box by the door. Um, we're so glad you guys could make it this morning. We hope you enjoy the service. Basically, how should Christians respond 
when the world around us is completely countercultural to Jesus. So, we're going to start in Nazi Germany. Sound like a great place? So, uh, if you want to take put these pictures up, these are Frederick, the guy, the old man on your left, is Frederick Boldelschwink Sr. Sounds like a great name. You just have to be very careful to say these words, right? Uh, his son, we'll call him Junior, because it's a whole lot easier to say, and I don't want to accidentally cuss in front of people. So, um, <clears throat> but... 1867, uh, Freddie Sr., he decides to start this foundation in what will be eventually become Germany. At this point, Germany's not even a country yet. It's all like region and city-states and all this other stuff in uh, Austria, Germany area now. And so he decides to start a foundation called the Bethel Foundation for one reason, to help epileptic, epileptic people have a place to be cared for. And in, in a culture where it's easy just to ignore and forget people, right? So in 1867, four years before Germany becomes a country, he's like, no, this is where I'm going to get my heart, passion, and my life, and all the desires from my heart, and all this. Uh, <clears throat> and so eventually, by the 1900s, they start to serve any, any physically and mentally disabled person in the area. Eventually, he goes to 14 different communities, 66 years before the Nazi regime comes into power, right? And so here they are, they're this nice little, like, uh, area, and they start caring for people, they start loving on people, they say, no, no, people that are easily forgotten about, they matter to Jesus, and so they matter to us. And so they start these foundations, and not just like these foundations, but a place where they can find care, the place where they can find, um, like, all this, this place of rest and stuff like that, and so they start these, all these, all the way throughout these areas. And then when the Nazi power comes into play, uh, Freddie Jr. is in charge of this, and as the, as the Mein Kampf, as Hitler's Mein Kampf comes into play and all this other stuff, Freddie Jr. says, no, no, we're going to resist all we can. Not once does he let the state-run government come on their properties to take over their properties. You could see the end goal before we knew, like we read history, and we're like informed history readers, like how, is, how could you not just tell that they're going to kill all these people, right? Well, if you're in the German like, area, you're like, they slow, it's like the, the dial, like turning up the dial of the boiling frog and stuff like that. It's just slowly coming in. But Freddie Jr. can see it and say, no way, we're not letting you guys do this. We'll never accept your money. We're just going to keep doing this. And so he resisted this entire time, his entire time. And the only reason I know about these guys is because uh, I was rereading Bonhoeffer's um, uh, biography. Which, by the way, if, you've not, if you're into biographies, this has to be on your list. Um, Bonhoeffer is a spy. He was a prophet, he was a pastor, he's a theologian, a scholar. Uh, he escapes to America, but then feels God calling back in the 1930s to Germany to lead up a church that would literally just kind of save the, the Christian remnant in Germany during this, this Nazi regime. Well, he meets Freddie Jr., and here's what uh, Eric Metakis, who wrote the, the thing, he says this. When Bonhoeffer walks into the Bethel area. He says, Bethel began in 1867 as a Christian community of people with epilepsy. By 1900, served several different facilities and cared for 1,600 people with physically and mentally disabled people. Freddie Jr., we'll call him that, <coughs> took it over after his father's death in 1910. And by the 1930s, whole towns of schools, churches, farms, factories, shops, houses for patients, nurses, and caregivers and at the center of the numerous hospitals for the care facilities, including orphanages, Bonhoeffer saw Bethel as an antithesis of the Nazi worldview that exalted power and strength. It was the gospel made visible, a fairy tale land of, landscape of grace, 
where the physically and the mentally disabled were cared for in a palpable Christian atmosphere. And we can hear something like this and be like, that's awesome. This is great PR for church, right? Like, we've done something good. We're not like a scandal anymore. Like, we see this and we're like, sweet, we got one right. And it's so tempting to think, like, that's good for that. But here's the, here's the thought that's been haunting me for two years now, three years at this point. Um, what if history repeats itself? What if history repeats itself? How is society and culture going to respond? Specifically, how will the church respond? Very specifically, how will we think church respond? And even more personally, how will I respond? It's so easy to think, like, those people over there got it right and all that, but who's to say if I get this right or not? Who's to say if you get this right? Which ideology wins? The one that's comfortable? The one that's convenient? The one that, hey, like, how easy would it have been for Freddie Jr. to be like, yeah, we'll take the state money. We'll let you on our property, right? And if they would have let them on their property, what would have been the end result? More murders, right? Think about it. We know the millions of Jewish people who were murdered just for being Jewish, right? Because of the Nazis' ideology and the Mein Kampf and all this. Like, all of the things, we understand all that. But we have, like, it's very like, it's not as known as the hundreds of thousands of mentally and physically disabled people were also murdered. Just because they're mentally and physically disabled in these concentration camps. Somehow, Freddie Jr. said, no, no, I can see this. I'm going to resist this. Right? And so, what happens if, if history repeats itself? Because if you notice this, like fashion trends are coming back. Yeah. Like what we thought was cool in the 80s and 90s were like, oh, awesome. And now they're right back in style. And they're like, seriously, if I would just kept my high school like wardrobe, I'd be the coolest person around, right? But instead, I got rid of my Doc Martens under blue and I got rid of all these like suspenders. I was like, no, I just can't wear this stuff. I should have just kept it all. Um, but, you know, fashion trends and all that. So what if history repeats itself? Whose ideology gets to rule in your heart? Which ideology, which kingdom are you going to be like, elite, loyal to? Which one are you going to trust? Uh, and all this. Somehow, Freddie and Bonhoeffer, they understood that, that there's something bigger than themselves. Freddie, Freddie Jr. says this at one of the points of his journals. He understood that he was going to stand in front of God and give an account for what he did with the people that were cared for him. He also understood that Hitler was going to stand before God and give account of what he's, what he's done. And he wanted to stand again, like with all passion and conviction to say, yep, I did everything that I could. So this, I just want to throw this out there. Like, if history repeats itself, how are we going to be shaped? How are we going to rule? Like, how are we going to like, influence the people around us? Which, which kingdom are we going to like, rule in our hearts? And all this. And so today we're just going to walk through this. What does it look like? Um, because they, Bonhoeffer and, and Bodel Schwenks, they see the book of Ephesians as a great anchoring point for them. Because remember, this letter is not written in, in a vacuum, is it? Right? We, we can look at Acts chapter 19 and we see what happens. Where Paul shows up and he's like, oh, there's a group of people who call themselves Christians, but they're just living by willpower. They're not living set and powered by the Holy Spirit. So he prays for them to be filled by the Holy Spirit. They get filled by the Holy Spirit. And then a, literally a riot breaks out because the worship of Jesus is so powerful that it diminishes the worship of Artemis. And the people who are making money off of the worship of Artemis are like, well, you mess with their economy. So they get a little upset, right? And they start this nice chant that says, great is Artemis and all this other stuff. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, we're, we're going to keep worshiping Jesus. And because of that, it literally disrupts and like completely overthrows 
uh, Ephesus. And so they, they looked at the book of Ephesians, uh, Bonhoeffer and, and Bolschwinkel, and say, man, this is how we do this. This is how we actually live countercultural when the world around us is going one way, but the ways of Jesus is this way. And so this is what we're going to work through today. Uh, so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. We're getting into 15 because uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've gone through this one long run-on sentence. And in this, what we found out is that Roland told us this, like, uh, at the Sadie Hawkins and Anson Macaki Pants, remember this line? He says, like, you are chosen. Like, God has chosen you, right? And then we talked about that God has redeemed us. He's repurchased us from, some, uh, from Satan. And then we have been united. Now we're going to live in power. These are the four things about the identity in this run long on sentence. And so we're headed into this next se section. So we're chosen, we're redeemed, we've been united, not just with Christ, but with each other. And so this is how the followers of Jesus who have different skin colors, different backgrounds, different voting patterns and all this can say, no, no, Jesus is more important than me. And Jesus is more important than your ideology and all this. We are not the centers of the kingdom that Jesus is. And so they can work in this. So now we're going to get into this next part. Here's what he says in verse 15. Paul writes this. This is why, since I, Paul, heard about your faith in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you. As I remember you in my prayers, I pray that the God of our, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that you may know what this hope of His calling is, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward you who believe according to His mighty work of His strength. So, we're going to go through this. We're going to go through it slowly. We'll be in this section for a few weeks as well. But what do we see right away? Uh, first thing that Paul's going to remind them that they are faithful. He's like, hey, I'm commending you because you are faithful, right? And, he's the, and we have this idea that faith is like this mental thing. As long as I think the right things, we're good. And biblical faith, though, is not about your thoughts. Biblical faith, because remember, Paul is a Jewish rabbi. He's writing to Greek-speaking Christians who are also living in Roman culture. So there's three different cultures at least going on right now, right? So his idea of faith is not just the mental thoughts, even though we have this idea. Like, we've been so influenced by Greek, Greek mythology and philosophy, we don't even really understand it. Like, we're just not aware of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like when the older fish asks the younger fish, hey, how's the water? And the younger fish are like, what's water? <laughs> right? Like, this is the idea. Like, we've been so indoctrinated in this. But Paul, for, for Paul, for biblical faith, has nothing to do with just your beliefs. It's about your allegiance, your loyalty, and who you trust. Like, everybody has faith in something. You, are, you have faith in the chairs you're sitting in. Or at least you should, because you're sitting in them. Right? And hopefully they hold you. Uh, <laughs> but every time you sit down, you're putting your, you're, it's an act of faith. And so this is the idea for Paul. It's you've put your faith into Jesus. You've put your hope, your trust, your allegiance, your loyalty, everything is into Jesus. Not Hitler, not Caesar, not whoever your favorite politician is, right? Like, it's like Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi, in my opinion, between the two parties at this point. Like, different branding, same ideology. That's just my opinion, but we're not here for politics, so don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> that was my political soapbox, there you go. So, <laughs> but when it comes to faith, it's so easy to say, oh, my faith is in this. No, it's not. If, if it was, your actions would follow along. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to change how you behave, how you live, and all this. 
Why don't we just call it what it is? You think these things. You don't actually do these things. Faith is, and it's not a way to earn it, it's a way to respond to it. You know what I mean? Like some of us who grew up in this church that like, you have to earn God's love. No, you don't. He loves you. Yeah. When we act these things out, we're just living out in responsiveness. Like, this is, this is what Paul's reminding this, the church of Ephesus about. And the second thing about this is love. Um, and, and the idea of love here, we, we're so shaped by our culture. Um, and the idea of love, that, that biblical love is not an emotion. Biblical love, or just an emotion, I should say. Biblical love is actually a commitment. Like the idea of, like, I'm going to stick with this, right? Um, because here's the, our culture tells us that we can fall into love. Well, if that's the case, then you also fall out of love. And we've seen the ramifications and the consequences of this. When people are like, mm, I just don't love that person anymore. Here's, here's the weirdest thing. Like, we say we love trucks, we love pizza, we love our football team. And we'll use the same word to say, I love my wife and my kids. That should give us an alarm of, like, is this really true, right? Like, do I love my pair of shoes as much as I love my wife? And that's a, if that's the case, you have a whole lot of counseling ahead of you. And I'm not your guy because I'm not going to be nice about it. So you're going to walk away going, that's, God, that's a jerk. You're right. Um, but here, like, the reality of it is, is we are so shaped by the culture. 53 years ago, we had an event and an ideology that took over our culture. What stopped in the sexual revolution? That said, hey, just, ex just explore. Experiment, have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. We don't even call it love, it's just a physical act and all this. And if you've been around for, like, we have a, once a year we have a, ser a sermon series, The New Rules for Sex, Love, and Dating. You can go on the website, find those sermons. It's awesome. It's really uncomfortable, but it's kind of fun to watch people's reactions. So uh, you can do that too. Uh, but the reality of it is, is, we've seen the ramifications of that. Let me ask you this, 53 years ago, is the nuclear family better or worse off than it was 53 years ago? Worse, right? How many more single parents are raising up like, their families? Right? How many broken homes do we have? We, we, Heather and I were just watching, I don't even know what it's called, but some fixer-up home thing, and this dad was fixing up his home because when he, when his kids want to show up there, they don't want to just be a place to have their, like, they want to be a home, so he's like spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to compete with his, his ex-wife, who's all like their co-parenting. So when the kids show up at their house, he's like, well, you know what I mean? Like, I want to be an awesome place. I want to be better than what his they're experiencing at their mom's house. And I'm like, holy crap, you said that out loud. It, like, it's one thing to do it, you know what I mean? But at least you're, you're at least admitting it now. Yeah. So that like this is think about the economics, think about all this. Like I grew up in a single parent home. I watched my mom work three to four jobs at a time in order to make ends meet. Why? Well, because my dad wasn't like unfaithful, so that's a whole different story. But um, like when you live into this ideology, it shapes us. And when you think oh, it's just sex, I can do whatever I want to do. Is it really that big of a deal? You know, you tell me. Just look at it medically speaking. 1946, when the Center of Disease Control was started, there was two STDs listed. <laughs> Currently, there's 27 and it's a growing list. We've invented and discovered ways to have disease-ridden things like really tear apart our bodies, physically speaking, wow. in the name of the sexual revolution. Logically speaking, this should like wake us up and be like, hmm, maybe we should change the way we approach love. Maybe we should like change the way that we, we do this. 
Well, we don't, right? Because logically speaking, culturally speaking, it's good to explore, you try it before you buy it, whatever phrases you want to use, right? And it's just sex. It's not that big of a deal. And then, like, we, 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 we treat everything temporary and disposable, don't we? Yeah. Right? Like, I was talking to friends when I was working uh, on the Toyota, the Denso, the assembly line, and this girl just came and just weeping, I was talking to her, and she's like, I'm pregnant, I don't know what to do. I was like, if you need help, I'm here for you, type thing. Uh, my wife, Evan, I would love to talk with you. And she came back the next day. She's like, I found a solution for it. And I was like, ooh. And she's like, just have an abortion. It was an easy, easy solution. And it was like the physical pain. But then as, we, as I worked with her, I watched the emotional pain that just took toll. And we see, we, we say it's a, it's a solution. We see things like, like, we have a problem, we have a solution. It's easy. It's just like, you know, all this other stuff. But really, is it a solution? Are we going to carry those burdens and those weight and the, and the emotions that come with it? All in the name of sexual revolution. Right? And the idea that we, we, like, we have this idea that we can just run with it and just do whatever we want to do. So the question that we have to keep going back to is this. Is, uh, how, do, how do Christians respond when the, when the world around us goes countercultural? And what does it look like? Logically speaking, this study's been done time and time again. Harvard's done it, Oprah did it, so Oprah did it on her TV show, it has to be golden, right? Uh, Yale's done it now, Princeton's done it, but they've studied people, long-term studies, what's the number one thing that, that families can do to set their kids up for success? It's the number one thing, so they just keep doing these studies over and over again. And I feel like they're doing it to see like, what the next thing is, it has to be something different, but it keeps coming back to it. And the number one thing is a family meal time. No toys, no technology. Parents and kids sitting down together eating a meal. And there's having eye contact and conversations. Think about this. If you're a single mom working three to four jobs, or a single parent working three to four jobs, do you have time to sit down three, four, three to four times a day, or a week, I should say, and have a meal with your kids? It's easy to like let that slip, isn't it? It's easy to go, like, oh, not that big of a deal. But in these meal times, this is where the gold is. You're setting a standard. You're setting a culture for like an expectation for your family. You're investing into your kids. You're unwinding, rewinding the day together. What made you happy? What made you sad? What made you glad? Today, like this is the things that we had to learn. I remember I was working second shift, and then I got a day shift job. The problem is I brought my cell phone home with me uh, from Toyota when I was working there. And my boss would call me and be like, hey, this problem, you need to come in and fix it. And I would accidentally answer the phone and then have to talk to them. Uh, and Heather, I was like, we're having a meal time together. And I was picking up a phone, talking, and Heather looked at me and was like, you better stop this now. And I was like, oh, I'm like, all right. So I would forget my cell phone in my locker at Denzel at the factory. And then there's just no way to get a hold of me. And guess what happened? They figured it out, and life went on. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, until my boss called me one time and forgot to turn it off, and he's walking through the locker room, and he heard my phone ringing in my locker. And he was like, the next day, he was like, hey, you need to bring it? I was like, I'll take it home this time. So I would just take it home, turn it off, leave it in my car, and go from there. <laughs> because, I'm sorry, like, unless you're going to pay me 100, you know, 100% of the time, that's fine. But as soon as I got home, I, I knew I was setting a standard and a culture expect, expectation for our own family. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so what I was going to do, my sons were going to repeat. Mm. 
So whatever you're doing, you're sounding your daughters are going to repeat. What you allow is going to be like creeped into their life as well. And so if you want to set your kids up for success, it's really not that challenging and difficult. Have them be able to come together with them. No toys, no technology, and just talk. There you go. Welcome. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you get a car, you get a car. No, we're not open. So, uh, but it is part of that process, right? Um, and it, we just keep buying into this idea that we, everything's temporary, we can fix it all. But uh, that's, that's that. So let's go through this. How do we actually respond when the world around us is different and countercultural than the ways of Jesus? Paul gives us his answer in verse 16. Here's what he says. This is the first time he brings it up. We'll bring it up three or four different times. I pray for you constantly. He's praying for the church of Ephesus constantly, right? He's dead now, so he's not praying for you because that's not how it works. But think about this. like He's praying for the church of Ephesus constantly. And does he have a whole lot to complain about and like whine about the church of Ephesus? He's actually commended them pretty well, right? Let me ask you this. When is the most, what's the most of the time that you pray? Last week's work. When everything's falling apart, the bad times, when you're like, man, I really need to get this thing fixed, and so we just pray, like, God, this might be, I know I've tried everything else, but I'm going to pray for you now. You know what I mean? Like, this is typically what most of us pray, but what Paul does is he's saying, I'm praying for you consistently, I'm praying for you constantly, the good times, the bad times, and I have things that could say great about you. So the number one thing that we should do when, we, when the world around us is going to hell in a handbasket, countercultural Jesus, whatever you want to say it, is consistently pray. Consistently just pray for us. And just simply, don't wait for everything to fall apart. Just consistently pray. So, today we're going to walk through what is actually need to pray. Because it's easy to say that, right? Um, it's easy to say, yeah, you should just pray. But if you've never gone to church, or maybe you've been away from church for a while, and you're like, well, what does that look like? Right? It's easy, easy to say those things. Uh, and I think sometimes we say things, and then we don't actually break it down. So, so today is so what we're going to do. Is we're going to learn how to pray. Okay? You're going to follow an acronym. Uh, the first thing is going to be pause, rejoice, ask, then yield. Okay? So the first part we're going to do is we're going to pause. And we're just going to sit there and we're just going to, like, this is important to us because we have to disconnect from this world. 21 Pilots, the prophets of our day, says this. Like, they, they have this song, the car radio, right? But somebody stole my car radio and now I'm stuck at the intersection just with my thoughts. And this is reality. We, have, we are so distracted from things like... Think about this, we, like, when something doesn't go our way, we're so distracted, we're like, okay, I'm bored, right? Just, if you go to, go, go to dinner with somebody, or a group of people, and watch how quickly they pull their phone out. Mm -hmm. yeah. If there's a lull in conversation, what's the first reaction? Here we go, I'm like, I gotta, somebody must have texted me, somebody must have, whatever, tweeted me, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, no, just sit there and pause. We're so addicted to noise and, and distractions, and all this because we don't actually want to sit in our thoughts. And when we sit in our thoughts, guess what happens? The, the, the complicated net mess, like the mess that we have, starts to get un unraveled. Yeah. But the problem is, when we get unraveled, that's when the emotions comes up, that's when anxiety comes up, that's when like, that, that emotion, that feeling of stuff. Um, so my routine for me, and you don't have to follow, but just find your own routine. But I get up at 4 a.m., and I go out in my living room, and I start coffee, and I just sit there. And it's silent, it's awkward, it's weird. The good thing is, nobody else is awake. And so, I can be awkward by myself. And that's the beauty of this. Like, you don't have to be, like, silent with other people, but just pause. 
And the psalmist says this, be still and know that I am God. You're not. As much as you want to be. Be still and know that God is God. So just be still for a moment. It could be 90 seconds, it could be 5 minutes, it could be 15 minutes, whatever. Maybe, maybe 90 seconds, 3 or 4 times throughout the day is exactly what you need just to pause. And just to silently hear God's voice. And in that moment, you're going to start unraveling certain things, right? And then the next thing is you go to rejoice. Uh, the rejoicing part is this part where we just start to thank God for everything. We just start to like thank God for every situation. And there's always something you can rejoice for. We talked about this last week that Corey Ten Boom, um, she and her sister Betsy rejoiced and thanked God for the fleas and the, and the, and the place that they're at, the, in the concentration camp. It was a shelter. It was this, this place where like 150 people were supposed to be, but four or five times the amount of people were in that, that shelter. And because of the fleas, the guards didn't come in and rape the ladies. But also, because of the fleas, the guards would leave her alone. And they smuggled a Bible in. And there's a small little yellow light within this entire place. And as a couple, they started, like the Betsy and, and her sister Corey, would have these worship services. So you had ladies from Eastern Europe. You had ladies from Poland. You had ladies from Netherlands, where they were from. They had people from all these other places in Germany, in different languages and different backgrounds, worshiping Jesus in the midst of this concentration camp. And because of the fleas, the guards would never go in. Even though it was illegal for them to have a Bible, even though it was illegal for them to even pray and worship Jesus, they just sat there and worshiped. It's like, you can find something to be thankful for. Does that make sense? There's something in your life, in your day, that you can be thankful for, right? And then the ask. And this is we get to play with Buzz Lightyear, okay? So, let's say Buzz Lightyear has to go from here to here, and it's like a river. Just imagine this, okay? Sometimes, what does Jesus ask us to do? He tells us about this persistent widow who goes before the, the judge and is constantly asked and constantly asked. Sometimes, what we need to actually do is think about this. Buzz like you're throwing these rocks into that water. And this is what our prayers are. Something that's so insurmountable that we're just coming before God and it feels like nothing is changing, nothing is doing anything. So we just keep praying, we just keep adding these in here, and we just keep going on and on and on. And one prayer after another, we just keep praying. We throw these pebbles in. And if I splash, I'm sorry. Um, but they can handle it. But so we just keep praying, God, change this in my life. God, I need a job. We bring this in. So we just keep praying. God, I need healing. We just keep praying. God, I need something to change in me. God, help me to find fulfillment. Here we go. God, can you put food in my cupboards? We just do this, right? And if we do this over and over and over again, we just constantly keep praying, God, can you do this? God, can you do this? Can you do this? God, can you change something in me? Something starts to happen, doesn't it? What is this unsurmountable river? Eventually we'll get this like bridge that we just keep walking over and over. Like, just keep praying, God, can you do this? God, can you change this? And eventually you'll see this start of like a, a way to start up here to get across here, right? And so if we keep going and we change this over and over again, we just keep praying, God, will you change my situations? God, will you heal my sister? Sometimes you don't have words to pray. 
James says this, you have not because you've asked not. This is not a golden ticket to get like some lottery ticket or whatever, but we just keep doing this, right? The Proverbs, this says this, that wisdom is walking the street, crying out. Do you need it? Do you need wisdom? Come to me and I'll give it to you. So as we do this, we just keep going. And here's the deal, like, it feels like nothing is changing. It feels like God is not doing anything yet. The problem is we are so like so addicted to instantaneous things that we just want it over and over again, right? Yeah. We just want like, hey, 30 seconds to get a burrito. Well, not really. Um, not a good one, at least. But um, we just keep praying and praying, and God, we eventually start building something. Here's, a, here's, like, here's what I realized. God suddenly doesn't just happen overnight. God suddenly is big and layered in prayer. And so as we're doing this, as we're constantly praying these things, you just keep throwing this in there. And eventually, guess what happens? Little Buzz Lightyear gets a walkway. And then you keep praying, and he builds another walkway. And while this may be a challenging part of this, we ask for the big things, we ask for the little things, we just keep asking there's a scientific theory that the, fl the, the, the flaps of a butterfly's wings could actually change the entire wind direction, the entire, like, over the course of time, right? Your prayers could shape the future and the present of the cultures around you. We just give up when we don't see it the third time. Like, I've been praying for, I've been praying for all two days, God. Awesome. Keep asking. <laughs> right? Like, this is, this is the reality of it. We give up so easily, but God is saying, just ask, just come before me. And then this last one is yield. Now, um, part of this is like, we just have to work through this, that um, this seems a little counterintuitive, but here's the problem. When we look at situations, and this is where you put those pictures up, we look at situations like this, and uh, we wonder, how does this happen, right? Can you really fit the Eiffel Tower in your finger? Not really, right? And this next one, are you big enough to really kiss the Sphinx? Probably not, but it's all about perspective, isn't it? Am I that big, or is the Sphinx that small? Which one is it, right? Either, it's just perspective. When we get so full of our, our anxiety and our fear starts rising up, or our emotions, or our anger start rising up, here's the problem. It's not that it's actually so big, it's that you're so close to it. That it actually overshadows God. Here's where yielding starts happening, though. When you sit in the presence of God and you pause and you rejoice and you ask, it changes your perspective. It changes like, oh, God, you are bigger than that fear. God, you are bigger than my anxiety. God, you are bigger than my past. God, you're bigger than those sins I did yesterday. You're bigger than the sins I did today. God, you can change this, right? And so when we sit in the presence, we pause, we rejoice, and we ask, and we sit and we start yielding. Part of the, the first part of yielding is actually just being in the presence of God. And sometimes, some of us may have grown up in a, in a scripted prayer, is what I call it, uh, or praying the rosary or some other contemplative prayer or something like that. Uh, the first time I did this, I was sitting and I was just like, uh, 
this morning praying this, the sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I would just repeat it, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was the first time that I recognized my life's decisions created the reality that I was living in. Does that make sense? Like, I, like, no friends, it was broken, like all these other relationships. And I just realized, God, I created this, this mess for me. And then my, my mentor was like, hey, have you ever prayed these prayers? It's like, sometimes you don't know what to pray, so you get to go to these scripted prayers. And I was like, never done that. That sounds like witchcraft. But it wasn't. It was like this, this thing where I could just sit there. And I didn't have the words, so I just relied on previous Christians who had a lot of extra wisdom and a lot of extra years behind them. So we, they did this. And so we started doing this. And I, was, I remember sitting there, and God asked me to give something up. And this is the first time I quit smoking. And I was like, why would I quit smoking? I actually like it. And God was like, well, you can't be a Christian and completely destroy your lungs. But you should break this addiction. And so, um, and so I just quit smoking. And it was the hardest decision up to that moment that I had. And I remember thinking, okay, God, like, I'm going to do this. Acts chapter 10, Peter is in this prayer time with God, and he gets into this trance. And the Holy Spirit shows him this sheet of, like, massive sheet. And there's clean animals, and there's kosher animals, and there's unkosher animals. And at the same time, Cornelius, and, like, miles away, is having this moment with God. And he's like, hey, go send the Joppa, go find Peter, and do this. And so in Peter's trance, he hears the voice of God kill and eat. He's like, no, I don't want to, because it's, you know, I haven't had any unclean animals. Which, by the way, you're missing out on bacon, so just go do it. But, um... So he does this, exactly, right? Like, and so Peter, like, he gets up, he's like, I don't know what this is all about. And he's hearing the knocks from the messenger from Cornelius to say, hey, come with us. And so he goes with the messenger from Cornelius, he goes into the house of the centurion, the Roman centurion. So he does this, and he shares the gospel with the household of Cornelius, which is probably roughly about 50 people, just because of the household, the name household, or the word household there. And they start believing in Jesus. Prior to this event, I think, I think Peter's more, he's a Jewish, he just happens to follow Jesus. After this event, he becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who happens to be Jewish. And, and this is where he starts yielding over his ideology and his, his identity and stuff like that. God's going to ask you to give something up, but this is where you just yield. So here's what we're going to do for a moment. We're actually going to pray. Okay, so we're going to take a moment. We're going to pause together, and then I'm going to lead you into a time of rejoicing wherever you're sitting, okay? So, let's just pray together, and let's work through this, okay? God, we come before you, and we just pause to hear you.
now. Just go before God and ask. Big things, little things. So God, we come before you, and we ask that you would give us insight, and we're going to yield to your will. God, we're going to acknowledge that it's your kingdom, and that it's your will. God, as we go from this place, as we follow you, in the next 168 hours, God, I pray that we would just simply create these moments where we pause, we rejoice, we ask, and we yield. And every time we do this, God, we're going to draw your kingdom closer to this earth. Some of us a lot of things to pray for, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger, and all this other stuff. Some of us have some great things to celebrate, God. But we're going to pray together that your kingdom would come. And would you saturate Maribel and the surrounding areas with your presence and your kingdom? And God, as we live this out, would you create little fairy tale lands of grace? in our midst. And would you create an atmosphere that is palpable of a Christian atmosphere, God? Would that be said of us and where we live, where we work, where we play as we follow you? We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks for going through that with us. Um, and if you need prayer for anything, I'll be back at the Green Wall. I'd love to pray with you. And just connect with you. And if you're new here, I would just encourage you to connect and uh, get services out in the lobby. Um, so let's go. Be in church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.